Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. We have two women in today who help people when they're coming out of prison and they need a medical lifeline, which is an underappreciated part of the challenge of reintegrating people's society. They've been doing it at a George Street clinic called the New Haven Transitions Clinic. And they have some ideas they want the state to know about, about how we could do a better job based on the work they've been doing. Say good morning to Lisa Puglisi, the director of New Haven Transitions, and Nadine Horton, a research assistant at the center and a longtime person active in our New Haven community. Welcome, folks, and uh, welcome to Dateline New Haven, and welcome back to Nadine. Thank you. That's funny. I'm not hearing Nadine there. Hey, Oh, I know why. Okay. How about now, Nadine? Hey. Can you hear me? Yep, and now I'm here in Lisa too. Fantastic. All right. Well, welcome here. So um, your clinic is part of a national network. And does that mean that it's it's actually a subsidiary of this nonprofit called Transitions Clinic Network, TCN? Yeah, exactly. So we're one of um, close to 50 programs across the country. The model started out in California in 2006 and came here over 10 years ago. And it's its own nonprofit? Um, it's, it's a, it's a collaboration. So it's a, a number of programs who do the same stuff and learn through the same, um, in the one building. And that's at that George street building right before you get to park. Oh, I understand what you're saying. No, it's not a nonprofit. This is a clinical program. So it's uh-huh. in community health centers. Mm-hmm. It's actually not at 300 George. That's where our main offices are, but the program's at Cornell Scott. So we're right, oh, right on 150 Sargent. Okay. So the program's right there. Part mm-hmm. of community health centers, which is the whole model, but it's really based around employing community health workers who have themselves been incarcerated in the past Oh, okay. to help people make a connection. And I'm going to ask you, Lisa, to get so close to that mic, you're almost touching it so we can hear you better. Definitely. So now I get a better idea. So in the kind of primary care center that the, the Hill Health and Fairhaven run for Yale New Haven, main place a lot of people get their health care, right, on Sergeant Drive there. You guys have a program within that. You got it. That, right. and, you, and you hire people who used to be in prison Yes. as health workers to give health care and guide people when they come out of prison. And there's also a research component to this, correct? Yale School of Medicine involved in your, and is that where you come in, Nathan? Correct, so I'm a research assistant at the School of Medicine, but I'm also the panel manager at Transitions Clinic. What does panel manager mean? So basically I manage the schedule, I help the community health workers set up appointments for folks recently returning home. Um, when we're actually in clinic on clinic days, I help you know the doctors make sure we're, we're running on time as best as we can. Um, just to make sure everything's running smoothly. And so how many days are, is this clinic running? Um, we have somebody there caring for people every day of the week, and we focus um, a big group who comes in to work on this stuff once a week. And then how many, we used to have 25 people a day being dropped off in New Haven. I'm sorry, a week dropped off in New Haven from the state prison system. Uh, what's that number now? Do you know how many people we have? The most in? updated, uh, it's actually hard to get these numbers and mm-hmm. hard to get accurate numbers, but I'll say that the most updated number we've seen is about 900 coming back to New Haven yearly. A year. And that's probably an underestimate. And then in your website, you say that there are 10,000 people statewide who return home every year from incarceration. A vast majority are chronically ill. Yeah. Now that's the part that blew me away because I guess what you're talking, and you also were pointing out that 43% are black, 26% are Latino. So I'm doing my math here. 79% are people of color. So obviously mm-hmm. this is the worst affects them. 
But I guess people don't often talk about this. They talk about the need to get a job, training, homes when people come out of prison. I don't hear much about health care. Why is health care a central point of how we could do a better job with a big unmet need for people coming out of prison? That's a great question. And I think it's just human nature that it's lower on the list. You know, when you're coming out, uh, you need a roof over your head, you need food. You need to do what probation or parole is telling you you need to do. Uh, There's lots of natural stressors. There's family reintegration. Um, There's so much on people's plates that healthcare, of course, you know, moves down the list as it would for anybody. And yet it's, it's dangerous. So the risk of dying after your release from prison is 12 times higher than people in the community. It's crazy, right? What kind of period of time are we talking about? In the first two weeks. Whoa. So that's mm-hmm. out of a big Whoa. study in Washington A State. risk of the first two, wow. But that's been replicated in many other states as well. Wow. And so um, I'll say that, you know, um, it, it is shocking and it, it, it's crazy, you know, just the level of, of chronic illness and in incarcerated people, but it's not actually that surprising. We incarcerate people for having illnesses, right? We incarcerate people around substance Well, addiction, disorders, yeah, that's the big... Around no, what... mental health conditions. Right. And then many develop chronic conditions while they're inside as well, given the built environment, given diet, given all the stressors as well. Mm, that makes sense. So what, when you're talking about that number of um, chronically ill, what, what chronic illness you talk about? You, you mentioned um, substance abuse disorder. You mentioned other kinds of mental health disorders. Is it mostly that or is it other no, stuff? The is vast it diabetes? Ma- yeah, the vast majority of chronic illnesses are actually overrepresented amongst people who are incarcerated or on community supervision with probation or parole. So they have higher rates of heart disease, hypertension, asthma, um, et cetera, in addition to the substance use disorders. Obesity is a big one because of the food that's in in these correctional facilities. A lot of folks go in at one weight and they come out exponentially heavier because of what the food that they have access to. Is it also the exercise less? Or some people exercise a lot in prison, right? It's the lack of exercise now because of COVID. A lot of the facilities went into lockdown. So where they mm. used to have rec time every single day or every single week because of COVID, they had to lock all of that down. So they haven't reopened that given that rates. It depends on the facility and it depends on, you know, it really does depend on the facility. Also, if folks are so inclined to, you can, in your little cell, try to do some type of workout. But again, if you're not feeling well and you're feeling you know, heavier and you don't have access to fresh air or you don't have access to the gym as you used to, there's not a whole lot of incentive for you to exercise. So maybe where you used to be more active in other occasions, now you're not. And because people are scared. They didn't know what was going on. So maybe I don't want to move around because I don't know how prevalent COVID is in the facility. I don't know what's going on. Nobody's telling me. So maybe if I was more inclined to go exercise now, I just want to stay to my cell and to what I know, the little area that I know. So at least I know I'm safe there rather mm-hmm. than moving around around the facility and not knowing what you're running into. Well, one reason, I, the main reason we obviously care is because we care human beings' health. It matters. We want people to be healthy. If they're not healthy, we want them to get help. Mm-hmm. I get the sense there's a second reason we want to care is that Poor health is a barrier. Unaddressed poor health is a barrier to people reintegrating into society, correct? To everything. So right? tell me about like, that. What like, can you do you, when you're you not emphasize well. that? So what are you seeing that on the ground, meaning in terms of um, how big a factor is this 
in the unmet challenge of reintegrating ex-offenders into society? It's humongous. I mean, the highest risk of death in those first weeks, and it never goes away, it stays high for, for months into years, is the risk of overdose. And we're seeing that, I mean, your listeners are, are seeing that. If they don't know somebody through the grapevine who's overdosed, you know, mm-hmm. then then it's time to expand the social network. But I mean, it's a, it's everywhere, right? And and it's especially high risk for this population. Um, so when we're asking people to do get a job, do this, you know, all the stipulations of community supervision, it's really hard to do that type of stuff when you're struggling with a substance use disorder that might be coming back at you now that you have your some of the old community triggers that used to trigger you in the past that you haven't been around for a long time. The stressors of of supervision itself add to it, mm-hmm. as does family reunifications, um, you, you name it. I mean, the ID issue comes up, trying to get a job. The, the mark of the criminal record is expansive, and it continues to impact people's lives into perpetuity almost after release. And so that, too, exacerbates poor health. And then, like, what can you do when you're not feeling well, right? Like, it, it, it Im- immensely diminishes your capabilities in, in terms of um, reentry. We're talking about the health care for people coming out of prison and ideas to how to improve it so that prove their chances of successfully reintegrating society. We're talking about that with Nadine Horton and Lisa Puglisi from the New Haven Transitions Clinic, which is part of a national network. And on Sergeant Drive, they give that health care and you employ. Uh, how many uh, formerly incarcerated community health care workers do you employ? Um, so in New Haven, we had two. Jerry Smart Jr. passed away a year and a half ago, who's near and dear to our hearts. I remember was, Jerry Smart Sr. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, well, Jerry Smart, uh, he never used the junior, but it's probably oh, that was the same, same guy. Same, Older mm-hmm. gentleman. Okay. Be- beautiful person. He yeah. was our senior community health worker for almost a decade. Okay. Um, so we now have one, but we also have a community health worker in Hartford at Intercommunity Health Center and in Bridgeport. So and one person for 900 who are coming out a year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Well, do a lot of people find you by being referred by others? Yes. Yeah, so because of the phenomenal work that our community health workers do, we get a lot of referrals from all types of um, community partners. So from discharge planners at the correctional facilities themselves, from the U.S. Attorney's Office, from halfway houses, from family members sometimes who know about the work that we do. So they come in fast and furious all the time. And if you think about the numbers that are coming home and one community health worker for each of these folks who, by the way, don't just come home with with physical health conditions and substance use conditions, but mental health issues, the stress of coming home, particularly if you've been away for a very long time. It's a very different world you're coming home to. So technology issues, there's so, so, so many things that they're um, coming home to. And the community health worker helps them with all of that. How many uh, other staffs do you have, doctors, uh, nurses? Um, so we have two uh, care providers, and, and a nurse practitioner and a physician. Actually, three, So we, because we have another clinic in Cornell Scott as well, Brian Gallant. Um, and then we have um, uh, law students who work in our mm-hmm. clinic who address civil legal needs of people coming home, barriers to healthy reintegration. And you run the clinic, right? I do. Do you yeah. also see patients? Yeah. Yes. And uh, so now, how many community health workers would you like to have? Um, so, so 
really conservative estimates show that at least 40 for the state. Now, I know you have a proposal. You're calling for 40 statewide. So yeah. how many would we get in New Haven? Uh, I, I think, you know, a chunk of that. We're one of the six uh, communities in, in the state that contributes almost 50% of incarcerated people. So we would need, <laughs> I want yeah. as many as I can get. And um, what are you doing with this proposal? So your proposal is to have 40 of these hired, formerly incarcerated people to be community health workers for people coming out of prison. You're doing this with the healthcare unions like SCIU 1199. Yes. And you're projecting it would cost less than $5 million a year for yes. these 40 people. Correct. I mean, community health workers are long tested. I mean, these are healthcare members who are part of teams all well, over the world. What does it world. mean to be a community health worker? Do you need a medical background? Are you no. outreach? You learn how to do, take blood and things like that? Or? No, not necessarily at all. You're a person of the community who's deeply invested in the community's health and develops skills through trainings. We have a training here at Gateway Community College um, to know how to interface with people, their health, and the health system. A community health worker does best when they're embedded in a health system because they need access to power. You need to be able to have some a, a person tell you, I'm not doing well, Manya. I think I'm going to relapse. Like, I'm not feeling good. I got too much stress on me. The cravings are coming back. And she has to then have access to get you to that next step, mm -hmm. to the care, to the medicine, to the mental health. So they're the middle person. Correct. The and connector. they're so skillful at it. It is a beautiful thing. So what's the status of this proposal? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. It's it's been proposed. Oh, um, there's a bill to the effect. Uh, yes, there's been a bill proposed to have um, the language. I'm not. I don't have in front of me, but it's essentially to get DSS to consider a way and find a way to fund community health workers through Medicaid. Oh, okay, to find the four. I've heard that it's not strongly supported at the state level, which is unfortunate. Um, they are crucial crucial aspects to any health team. And there, the evidence for community health workers in the health system is abundant. They help with can getting people cancer screenings. They help with diabetes. So obviously it saves us money mm -hmm. if you, they get the work done. Well, let, let's be real clear about that. It saves almost every study on community health workers show that they save about $2 for every dollar invested in them. And our study of our transitions right here in Connecticut showed that it saves uh, two and a half dollars for every dollar invested in the community health worker. So is there so a legislator a who has proposed this as a bill? There is. Yes. Are you going to be testifying at Hartford or? You bet. Absolutely. So when is that? How could our we listeners know, join? We don't know yet. We're going to, we can let you know once Yeah, let us know out. who the legislator is and what the bill number. We'll, Definitely. we'll put that in the independent. Yeah. Definitely. And as what happens a lot of times with these, these um, public hearings is they get sprung on you like within short notice of when they're going to happen. So it could be a week before it happens. It could be mm -hmm. two weeks. It could be a few days before it happens. So we will definitely keep you updated. And you have a second bill mm -hmm. that you're talking about. And it was interesting. It didn't say immediately um, for health, although I guess it's tied in. You want to make sure everyone coming out of, out of prison has a state ID. They might not have a driver's license, but they need a state ID. And that's uh, bill number 5333 in the house. What... What is the um, transitions issue here? Is just that your patients need that when they're getting services? So if you think about it, you need an ID to do almost anything. If you mm -hmm. don't have an ID, it's almost as if you don't exist. Right. So when you're coming home, a lot of times what the only thing that, that folks have in terms of an ID is a, is a prison-issued prison ID. 
are you going to want to go around to housing or jobs and say, here's my ID that says I was at Carl Robinson? And even if you got just a birth certificate, for example, which some people come home with, like that doesn't, (laughs) that doesn't work. Have you tried to do that? You know, like it doesn't go very far in trying to get a job. No, I definitely understand why ID is essential. I'm wondering what the healthcare tie-in, just because you look holistically at health, that their health isn't going to get better if they don't also have housing, if they don't also have... Absolutely. Yeah. And and there are some real practical things. For example, um, if you, let's say, are, are on methadone and you were on it in prison, our state has done a, a really robust effort in scaling up the access to methadone and other treatments for addiction for incarcerated people. But if you started inside and come home and you don't have an ID when you show up to that clinic, it's just not going to work. Um, and so it does have direct impacts on health in that way in terms of continuity of care. But it's like, it just adds to the mess on top of people that makes health fall lower on their list. And we know that people who are working, getting housing, getting food, getting access to all these things that they need in the community just do better. Mm-hmm. And we're talking to Lisa Puglisi and Nadine Horton of New Haven Transitions Clinic. Let me ask you both how you got into this work. Nadine, you've been involved in community stuff. You very much, we were talking before on the air about um, in the neighborhood you're active in off Whaley and Beaver Hills and Dixwell that Right near the prison, there's a whole building that might be a nice place to have a mm-hmm. reentry set of offices. Mm-hmm. How did you get involved in the kind of other work you do in the community? How did you get involved with Transitions Clinic and doing the research? So I originally came on as a research assistant. It's been five and a half years now. So time, time goes so fast. I really, thought you were just in here for six weeks. <laughs> okay. No, yeah. I know. It, time flies. It feels like I've been there for longer, but um, I'm absolutely where I'm supposed to be. So I came there five and a half years ago as a research assistant working on a study around gun violence, um, mitigating the effects of gun violence in the city of New Haven. So in the course of doing that type of work and because our team is so integrated, so we don't just silo off into our particular studies. We very much cross, we work across studies, we work across um, fields of interest, et cetera. So I got to know the community health workers and just in talking with them in the office and then, um, in doing recruitment for studies, a lot of times the community health workers would go out into the field and recruit from halfway houses or folks at clinic that they saw that would qualify for a study. So I got to work really closely with both Jerry and Manya in New Haven. So that's how I got to know more about what the clinic does. And just wanting to go and maybe shadow and just see. I think that's another thing that's important in, in, that Lisa didn't talk about yet, but the fact that the teaching around what goes on at the clinic and working specifically with this population, because it is a very specialized population, um, the understanding and, and everything that goes around with that. So I got connected that way. And then when, unfortunately, when Jerry passed, uh, just stepping in to help kind of run the clinic a little bit better because we went from two phenomenal community health workers to one. And, and that's it, a lot. During COVID. One during thing I was COVID. interested in was... Uh, how the issue touches you personally. How you, do you tell me something about your life that makes you care about so this. So in our in my neighborhood, which I'm in Whaley, Edgewood Beaver Hills, the web, we have the Whaley Avenue jail, which is the regional jail. So we when folks were literally getting dropped off, a lot of times years ago we had a huge incident of folks getting dropped off in front of the Whaley Avenue jail. They're not from New Haven. They have no money. So they were going out to the neighborhood and like breaking into sheds and, you know, just trying to get some funds to get back home or whatever. So we were experiencing a huge uptick in, in like, Isn't that something you come out of prison and your first thing is you need to commit a crime to to eat? Well, (laughs) if you're not from here, I I want to get back home. I don't know anybody. What am I going to do? I'm going to fall back on what I know. 
And that, now, do that's, they now get released at Project Moore? So Project Moore is the official reentry welcome center of the city. So yes, they do. There is um, a mechanism in place to help direct folks to the reentry center. But again, you know, talking as a community member, we saw this personally. So trying to help folks. And in our neighborhood, we look for other alternatives. So we don't look to like locking folks up. We're like, okay, how can we help these folks? What can we do? What can we as a community do? So we were trying to reach out to different folks. Like, how can we help these people? What, what can we do? So that's how I got involved as like a um, community person. And then the other thing is we have a community garden there that's right next to the Whaley Ave Jail. So we're regularly seeing folks, you know, sometimes folks would come down the street or, you know, correctional officers would drive down the street. And, you know, so there's lots of um, organic ways for us to interact with kind of that system of folks coming home. So it touched us personally because, again, we were seeing folks coming into our neighborhoods and we wanted to find a way to help them and direct them somewhere where they could get credible, practical help. Mm -hmm. So it's touched you as someone who lives in a neighborhood and you saw the impact of there not being enough support. What's, so you're doing research as well. In addition mm -hmm. to help make the center work, what's something you're researching? You do studies with people come back from prison on their health care? Yes. So the study that I'm on now is called the Justice Study, and it looks to um, speak to folks who have recently been, been released from prison or jail within the last three months and suffer from a chronic health condition like high blood pressure, um, high cholesterol, pre-diabetes, diabetes, or are overweight and to see how the conditions while they were incarcerated. So their lack of exercise, the, the diet that they ate, um, the lack of access to healthcare, how those things um, made their conditions worse because those are all factors of cardiovascular disease. And that is in conjunction with the Yale School of Medicine? Correct. And what's Yale School of Medicine's role in the clinic? Are they a partner or is it conjunction with them, staffers? Um, the we all who run the clinic work for Yale School mm -hmm. of Medicine. Are you all employees mm -hmm. of Yale School of Medicine? And they have deeply invested in our center, the mm -hmm. SAGE Center for Health and Justice. So this is a big institutionally supported group of researchers, uh, doctors, community health workers, uh, lawyers. You this is an obvious question, but what do you hope comes out of this study? What's the reason to be looking at the people in the first three months coming out who have these oh, so medical many. conditions? So, 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 so many. Uh, a big thing is a lot of these things are preventable. So diabetes is preventable. You know, I, it was funny. I was just talking to a participant the other day and talking to him about folks that he knew who were pre-diabetic or diabetic and he is having some, you know, issues. And just the they're losing limbs, they're losing vision, and it's all preventable. We hear folks who have recently passed, they're in their early 50s mm. or early 40s, and they don't have to die. But... Again, if you're coming home and you don't, if you're used to, while you're incarcerated, your meds are given to you, you're used to being called down for, for healthcare needs, now you're coming home and all of that falls on you. Again, that brings it back to where the community healthcare worker really can help navigate that because if you're coming home, I don't, what do I do for, prescri for prescriptions? What do I do for a doctor's appointment? Is it gonna take me three months to see somebody? Um, one of the hallmarks of our clinic is that we we try to get folks in within two weeks of their release. That's unheard of. So the value of the research, like earlier when you're making the case from our healthcare workers, Dr. Blisi talked about mm -hmm. the two and a half dollar return on every dollar you spend. What can be done with the data you're coming up with 
so that in the end we can get more help for people. Is it something you present to legislators to fund this stuff? Yeah, and I mean the other the other opportunity is to think about programs. Like we're we're studying this and we're finding that psychosocial stress after release is associated with with worse worsening of heart um, heart disease and cardiovascular risk factors. So that that opens a huge door to say what can you do at a system level to intervene mm. on this to mitigate some of the psychosocial stress to improve outcomes. I'm talking about stuff like universal basic income programs. I'm talking about system-wide health system programs like community health workers for everyone who's been incarcerated, right? I'm so talking about housing programs. Like what about if you house people? Love. If we as a city invest in people and house them after release, you've been housing them for the years that they were incarcerated and now it's okay not to, right? But if we help with housing, how does that then mitigate this risk and improve um, health? So you're hoping the data, so the data you're hoping can not only make a case for you know it needs to be done, but help you figure out specifically what kind of help will make the difference. Absolutely, and let's be real clear, crystal clear, that this is a health equity issue. Seventy percent and upwards of people incarcerated in the state and coming home are black and Latino, Latina, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we say things like we want to improve health equity, what that means in practicality is you have to invest in people. Right. And you have to actually dedicate funds to caring for people. And this is how you get health equity. So investing in community health workers and any of these programs that we mentioned is a direct investment in, in achieving health equity in our state. Lisa, tell me about your own pathway. So you um, you're both a professor at Yale or assistant professor, a researcher and a doctor who actually takes care of people. Has that been your whole career? How did you get into medicine? How did you end up? focus so much on the ex-offender population? Um, I'm like, you know, someone who's always late to the game a little bit. So no, my path has been very circuitous and I kind of figure out things as I go. It's just- Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New Haven partly um, and then in, in Boston. Um, you relate to Puglisi's like Judy Puglisi, the uh, no. principal? No. Uh, Lou Puglisi is my father-in-law who was a superintendent in New Haven for yep. years and a teacher at- um, Troop and Sheridan and science teacher, you name it. I have patients who are like, wait, are you related to Mr. Puglisi? He was nice to me. Barbara Puglisi is my mother-in-law. She works over at um, Riverside. She's a mm-hmm. teacher in, in the city for decades. She came from a caring family, helping family. And, and you Yeah, went- but it's not, you know what? Um, sometimes people say like, oh, you're doing, you know, God's work or this type of thing. It's not that. This is just necessary work, and it's joyful work. I'm not doing anything to be nice. It's like, common sense work. Yeah, it's common sense work, and I have we have the greatest patients. Like these are people with tremendous assets. So tell me a story about a patient, somebody either study or someone you helped. Doc, you know. Do- I'll tell you a, a beautiful story. I saw somebody the other day who said to me, "Puglisi, I don't think you like seeing me anymore." And I said, "Why? Why did you say that?" He said, "I think it makes you too sad now that Jerry died." And I said, wow, I said, you know what? It does, like, I feel sad all the time when I think about Jerry dying, but I love seeing you. And I'm like, do you know, like, the amount of effort me and Jerry put into you as a, like, how much we loved you and cared? Like, all the things Jerry did when you first came home years ago to help you get those jobs and to help, like, get things straight. So this person's been coming for years. Oh, yeah, I've known him for years So how long do they come to the clinic if you're an ex-offender? I'm their primary care doctor. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. okay. So you're stuck with me unless. And you how's this leave. person doing? Was this person? He is so special. He is a single father. He got his. We helped him like 
do some of that paperwork and all that stuff. And he is now raising a daughter who's graduating from high school this year, going to go into nursing school. And I just like, I was like, do you know what joy it brings me to see you having <laughs> raised your daughter like that as a beautiful father who's working two jobs and like have a daughter going to nursing school? Like that's what Jerry wanted. Like he is somewhere so proud of you. And so, but, but this patient is not a unique story. Like we incarcerate people who have tremendous assets, who are artists, writers, scholars, thinkers, laborers, tradespeople, and fathers. Are, are so much more than their charge. Mothers. So they're not, when we see them, one of the first things I say when I'm working with them is, I, I, I'm, I'm talking to the person who's in front of me right now. We don't look up what they've done. We don't care about their record. I'm talking to the person who's in front of me right now. So you're, and I always tell them you are so much more than, than your charge. So don't think of yourself that way. Family may see you that way. You know, community you're coming back into may see you that way. But just go from this point forward. Who you are today, sitting in front of me now, that's the point that you Nadine, start Nadine, can you tell me a story about one day of something that made a difference when you see this, why I do the job, this is how it makes a difference. Here's what we're up against. So I have several, but one I can think of off the top of my head is a participant who came to me. He just finished the study. So this is a 12-month study. When he came, he was suffering from, he was early in his recovery. So he was really trying to focus on staying clean and sober. Um, all throughout the study, just, just, you know, check in, making sure he had primary health care, which was very important. He got connected to groups. He got connected to, you know, physicians and clinicians who could help him with his recovery. And one of the things he was so focused on is making sure he always gave back. So reaching back to people who were also coming home, who were in the halfway house with him. He, he really wanted to do that work. Now that person is a um, counselor on board at a substance use um, organization in the city and is still continuing to give back and i was so happy to be able to give a referral for him to get that job he was like can i please put you down as a referral i said absolutely they called they talked to me i talked to them about it he got that position and he is doing phenomenal work and i'm so very very proud of him teamwork makes the dream work because every time i hear you tell stories it's not just about yourselves it's about the different people you work absolutely. with including the people coming out of prison you got it well good work anything Thanks, before Paul. we uh, thank you for joining us tell us about the important work you're doing how can people help or get involved? Contact their legislators about the House Bill 5333, which is the state ID issue. And then we will definitely loop back and let folks know how they can get on board with the community health worker bill. All right. Anything, final thoughts you want us to how we think about this issue in our time? You, you raised my awareness a lot today. We're just grateful for this opportunity. Thank you for, for spotlighting this issue. Um, and we have a lot of work to do in this state. I think we do it together. We're, we're not here just for transitions. We're here part of a whole justice reinvestment group. Um, and I think we do the best when we work together. That means working with the DOC to improve this transition home and, and really helping the community. The community health system's not perfect either. We got a lot of problems in our, in our own home. And so it's uplifting the community health system, the correctional health system, and all these community organizations which are doing incredible work. And working together, we can make a difference. All right. Nadine Horton, it's always a pleasure to talk to Judy. I mean, Lisa Puglisi. Sorry. Nice to talk to you again, It was to meet you. It was nice to meet you. Thanks to Harry Dros, the station manager, keeping us firing all cylinders. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day all night and all weekend long. 
on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.